Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Today, we're going to talk about the state of our democracy based on a new survey out this week from Brightline Watch, which is a group of political scientists that monitors threats to our democratic systems. The ways that President Trump challenged the legitimacy of the 2020 election were unprecedented. Before the election, he wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he lost. When he did lose, he claimed victory and pushed Republican lawmakers and elections officials to overturn the legitimate results. And of course, he encouraged his supporters to go to the Capitol on January 6th as Congress was certifying the election. Trump is now out of office, but his false message that American elections are fraudulent has permeated much of the Republican Party, particularly at the state level, where candidates are running on those ideas and lawmakers are passing laws that they say are designed to prevent fraud. This week, dozens of Texas House Democrats left the state to prevent the passage of new voting laws in Texas. Likewise, President Biden gave a voting rights speech on Tuesday urging Congress to pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Activists have called on Democrats in the Senate to end the filibuster in order to pass those two bills. This is where the debate over how elections function in America stands today. And Brightline Watch has surveyed Americans and experts alike on what they think about Republican and Democratic efforts and American democracy writ large. Here with me to talk about that survey is co-founder of Brightline Watch and professor of government at Dartmouth College, Brendan Nyhan. Welcome to the show, Brendan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So for starters, you did this big survey. It's something that you've been doing for a few years now. What are you hoping to accomplish by surveying Americans about democratic issues? Well, going back to the early days of the Trump administration, we thought it was important to see both where the American public was on the state of American democracy and how experts judged that state, people who had real scholarly expertise in the state of American democracy and how it compares to democracies around the world. That was obviously an issue that people have been talking about since Donald Trump became a major candidate in the race and certainly since he took office. So over the last now more than four years, we've been tracking the views of Americans and experts, and we hope creating a kind of record of evidence and data that we can use to understand not just the state of American democracy, but how people perceive it. So in broad terms, what do Americans think about our democracy? Well, not surprisingly, Republicans and Democrats are deeply divided. I think on the public side, that's the message that comes out most strongly from our latest survey. The views that people hold of the legitimacy of the 2020 election, for instance, are sharply divided along partisan lines. People's overall views of the state of democracy, Democrats are viewing it more favorably now that Joe Biden is in the White House and Republicans are viewing it less favorably. But maybe most fundamentally, we're still seeing that polarization over whether the results of the 2020 election should be accepted. That's been driving the politics of the Republican Party ever since Donald Trump lost. And we see no sign of that changing. In our most recent study, we included a candidate choice experiment where we asked Americans to pick between two hypothetical candidates. We made them both Republicans, and we randomized some different attributes of those candidates, their name and some policy positions they hold. And most notably, we randomized whether they supported or opposed impeaching Donald Trump for inciting insurrection and whether they supported or opposed certifying the 2020 election results. And what we find is Republicans continue to punish candidates who support holding Trump accountable for inciting the insurrection and who acknowledge the legitimacy of Joe Biden's victory. 
And under those circumstances, it's very hard to see how we can move past what happened in 2020. And indeed, it suggests the threat of challenging future election results is still very much with us. So on a scale from zero to 100 in the survey, experts ranked American democracy at a 68, and then the public ranked it at a 55. I'm curious, what does that mean? Is a 68 decently good for a democracy? And also, what does it mean that experts are maybe more optimistic about American democracy than the public writ large? Yeah, I think those numbers are interesting and they tell us something important. Experts do have a broader perspective on American democracy for all of its flaws, which have only grown more numerous in the last few years. They recognize that internationally, when viewed in comparison to countries that don't have democracies or have full-fledged competitive authoritarian states where there are elections, but it is not what we would think of as a democracy, America still looks better. I'm not gonna say good, but better. And so we've seen this long running trend for experts to rate American democracy overall higher on that scale, that zero to 100 scale you described than the public. What I think is most interesting though, is to compare over time, how experts view American democracy and how the public does. And there you'll see that experts' views of the state of American democracy really did decline during the Trump years, corresponding to important moments in our politics during that time. And it was only when political forces limited the threat of democratic erosion that we saw upticks back to where experts had previously rated us. So it's not simply the case that experts think US democracy is terrible because Donald Trump is in office or something. They seem to be responding systematically to the state of American democracy. So that's the good news in a way. Just to be clear for your audience, there's been an increase in expert ratings of democracy since Donald Trump was defeated. So the, the insurrection was turned back. The attempt to overthrow the election was turned back. And so experts are viewing American democracy more favorably than they were not very long ago. But at the same time, they see important threats that we can talk about. They are very much not sanguine about the landscape ahead, particularly the threat of subverting future elections. I want to dig into a little bit of what Americans think about our democracy. And in particular, you surveyed respondents about the extent to which they support what you call constitutional hardball tactics, which are things like gerrymandering, packing the Supreme Court or blocking court nominees, voter suppression, abolishing the filibuster, adding new states to the union, or refusing to certify election results things that are possible within the Constitution, but do not comply with the spirit of American democracy. What kind of support do those tactics have amongst the public? In general, the public is very much against almost all of these moves. We see only rare cases when even partisan majorities support any of these tactics. And I believe it's never the case that a majority of the public supports any of these particular moves. So it's not that they are popular, the threat, however, is that, as we've seen in recent years, the punishment, especially from your co-partisans, for violating these kinds of norms is very weak. That's the threat that we highlight in this report. Many of these measures are unpopular when you ask people in surveys, but when it comes to people's everyday lives, these kinds of procedural issues are very distant from the concerns of normal people, and they certainly don't rise to the level of an issue that would cause people to turn against their party, right? As we've seen again and again in recent years, as most notably the Trump administration have breached so many norms of our democracy. 
So I think that's the dilemma we face right now. These tactics are appealing to elites who are so polarized and so partisan and increasingly willing to violate democratic norms, especially on the Republican side. And we have a public that isn't especially supportive of most of these kinds of moves, but isn't willing to draw the line and punish co-partisans in a way that would deter elites from taking those kinds of steps. Why aren't rank and file voters voting on these kinds of issues or holding their party elites responsible when they play constitutional hardball, as you call it? The simplest answer is they're everyday people. They're concerned about things like uh, how well the economy is doing and whether they get health care. And procedural issues about how democracy works have very rarely been central voting issues. We can, of course, think of exceptions, but it's typically the case that these kinds of procedural norms are simply inside the beltway fights that people aren't concerned with. And the paradox is there are people, of course, who are concerned with these matters. They tend to be the most knowledgeable and attentive voters who also tend to be the most partisan. And as a result, the people who are most familiar with these matters are precisely the ones who are most likely to back their party when push comes to shove. Should we take this to mean that democracy isn't a priority for a lot of American voters? I think we should realize how fragile democracy can be. It's often not a first order concern. We've taken for granted the stability of the American political system, probably wrongly, well, definitely wrongly, given what we've seen in the last few years. And of course, given the history of the civil rights movement going all the way back to the Civil War and before, we've taken for granted the stability of the system. We've assumed the public would punish politicians who violated its norms and challenged its stability. And I think that has been revealed to be a mistake. Average everyday people will often put their side winning over abstract concerns over procedural fairness. And in particular, when there's a pretextual story that's sufficient to convince committed partisans that some wrongdoing was committed or something nefarious has happened. It's not as if people say, yes, I will overturn democracy. There's always some sort of a story about why it's necessary, about why the other side was cheating, right? And we've seen this again and again in cases of what scholars call democratic erosion. And that's precisely what so many experts are worried about here. So if there aren't electoral repercussions for playing constitutional hardball, how do you create incentives for politicians to comply with democratic norms? Well, that's the million dollar question. I don't think anyone has a simple answer at this point. One idea that some scholars have offered is that we should change electoral institutions in this country to reduce the insulation of especially the Republican Party, which currently enjoys a significant benefit in both the Senate and the Electoral College due to malapportionment. So if the Senate had less of a partisan skew and the Electoral College had less of a partisan skew, that might in turn put pressure on Republican politicians to take more popular positions, or so the argument goes. I think that's an open question. Some other scholars have offered broader kinds of arguments most notably, Lee Drutman has proposed moving towards a system of multi-member districts and ranked choice voting, which when paired would try to break the kind of zero-sum logic that drives so much of constitutional hardball politics. The idea that there are only two parties and everything that helps me hurts you and vice versa. In that context, those constitutional hardball moves have a kind of grim strategic incentive. And it's very hard to break people out of that 
zero-sum logic or get them to cross party lines. If we had an electoral system that provided more fluidity and more room for different kinds of parties, the, the argument goes, those incentives might be different. But of course, that's a very heavy lift to actually make happen in practice. I think Democrats perceive their politicians to be less inclined to play constitutional hardball. And to the extent that Democrats support some of these hardball tactics, like you know packing the Supreme Court or abolishing the filibuster, they're saying that it's in response to hardball tactics taken by Republicans. From the perspective of a scholar of democracy, what is best for the health of democracy? Both parties playing hardball, one responding to hardball tactics with more hardball tactics, or unilaterally de-escalating? I don't know that there's a consensus on this issue. It's an important point. I think for many years, scholars were worried about a kind of tit-for-tat escalation. And even if there was asymmetric polarization going on where Republicans were differentially more aggressive at using these kinds of tactics, the worry was if Democrats responded with different kinds of hardball tactics and different kinds of escalations that we could get into a kind of escalatory spiral that would be hard to break out of. I think that view is more common until recent years, as people have seen the threat to democracy become more acute and the risk of democratic erosion grow. They've been increasingly comfortable recommending changes that would require procedural alterations to the way American politics works. So most notably, you saw a very large number of scholars of democracy sign on to a letter arguing for abolishing the filibuster to pass voting rights and electoral administration reform legislation to protect against potential subversion. I think it's arguable whether abolishing the filibuster is fairly defined as hardball, but that suggests, I think, that scholars believe protecting democracy will require taking steps to defend it and not simply standing by as the threat of erosion grows. You asked experts about the extent to which many of these new election laws being passed by Republicans at the state level could impact democracy. And what did you find in terms of how impactful they could be? The experts are very concerned. And I want to be clear here to distinguish two different kinds of threats that are sometimes lumped together when people talk about the state laws that are either being proposed or have already been enacted to change how elections work. There are two kinds of threats. The first, which has received much more attention, are changes to limit how and when people can vote. And the second are changes to how elections are administered, which could make it easier to influence the procedures by which election results are determined. That second threat of electoral subversion, our experts were actually most concerned about. So 80% of them ranked increased state legislative control over state election boards as a grave or serious threat to democracy, the highest of all the items we polled. Very similar number, 76% said empowering state election boards to suspend local election officials was a grave or serious threat to democracy. And they see that threat as real. Approximately half of experts said that in 2024, we will see local election officials refuse to certify election results, or even a state legislature picking its own slate of electors rather than following the popular vote in that state. So the broad threat of electoral subversion here is one that experts are taking very seriously. Now, going back to that voter suppression point, there are a suite of changes there. Our experts were most concerned about restrictions on mail voting. Very high percentages of them said those restrictions were grave or serious threats to democracy. The percentages dropped for things like eliminating drive-through voting, 24-hour voting, 
voter ID requirements, banning, giving food and water to people in line. Experts saw those as much more negative than positive, but fewer rank those as grave or serious threats. I don't want to minimize that concern. We have centuries of creating discriminatory outcomes in voter access. So we should be very concerned about those issues. But our experts don't rank those as quite as serious a risk as the subversion issues. Right. It's worth mentioning here that some of the provisions in Texas that have received the most attention, like eliminating 24-hour or drive-through early voting, requiring a state-issued ID with absentee ballots, in the case of Georgia, banning the provision of food and water to voters in line. The experts that you talked to, the plurality of them said, this will not affect our elections, essentially. And of course, we've talked about on this podcast how there are normative arguments, and then there's arguments about whether we have clear social science research that says that this will impact our elections and so on. But it is important to point out that the experts, as you said, were far more concerned about state legislatures removing the independence of parts of the electoral certification process. Now, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act don't really address those parts of the process. They're more concerned about automatic voter registration, gerrymandering, trying to create standards across the nation for when and how people can vote. So it seems like, as far as what we've seen so far from the Democratic Party, there aren't clear measures being taken to try to stem what experts are actually most concerned about in 2024. What kinds of measures would experts suggest? So I'm neither a lawyer nor an election administration expert. To my understanding, the work hasn't fully been done on this. In conversation with experts who specialize in this field, my understanding is that the focus was really on those kinds of alleged voter suppression measures we talked about earlier and not on the subversion tactics and what a federal law could do that would protect against subversion and also survive court challenge in terms of the relationship between the federal government and the state administration of elections is not something that there's an easy answer to. That may be part of the problem, but it's clear that there is a gap here between what experts perceive as most important and what the current legislation would do. I mean, the most simple answer to this, of course, Galen, is those kinds of provisions should be defeated or repealed at the state level. That's a much more direct kind of change to address this than what could be included in federal legislation. Now, of course, how that would happen at the state level is less clear, given the politics that produce these bills in the first place. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, Democrats on the state level are passing laws that will make it easier to vote, like expanding early voting, automatic registration, things like that. Do experts think that any of those measures will make fraud likelier? Not to my knowledge. Experts have found over and over again that voter fraud is incredibly rare in this country. The 2020 election was, by most expert accounts, a remarkably successful election, well-administered, with seemingly negligible levels of fraud. We have excellent elections in this country that are deserving of trust. The voter fraud claims that are being made are simply baseless. These are rounding errors on rounding errors on rounding errors when handfuls of cases are eventually discovered. The issue that we face is that elites have created a fear of widespread fraud that's incredibly difficult to counter, especially because you're trying to prove a negative. You're trying to prove that there isn't all this fraud taking place that somehow hasn't been detected, even though there's no evidence of it, even though experts and legal scholars and courts have found again and again that there's no evidence of widespread fraud, we're in this endless game of whack-a-mole as trying to 
beat these claims back as politicians make them again and again. And under those circumstances, of course, it's very easy for politicians to say we need this or that provision to stop fraud. I want to talk a little bit more about agreed upon information about elections and the impact of not having a consensus on the reality of elections in America. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. In large part, support for Republican changes to state election law is rooted in the false belief that the 2020 election was rigged, as we've discussed. You look at ways of changing those beliefs and correcting the record on the legitimacy of the 2020 election in the survey that you conducted. What did you find? Yeah, these were some of the most encouraging results in our survey, which is otherwise quite discouraging reading at times. We randomized Americans to see to one of three experimental conditions. In the first, we just described this county in Arizona, Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located. It's been the center of a lot of controversy over the vote count, again, even though there's no evidence that any fraud took place. And so one set of Americans were shown just basic information about Maricopa County and what the vote totals were. Another was shown information adapted from news coverage describing to them all of the validation procedures that had been completed by government officials and third-party auditors showing no problems of fraud in the county. And then finally, a third group was given a description of the so-called audit that's being taken, that's taking place in Maricopa County by a dubious firm using absurd, unvalidated procedures to try to detect fraud. And what we found was that showing people that information about the official auditing process really did help restore confidence among Republicans in the validity of the vote count in Maricopa County, boosting the percentage of them who said they were confident that the vote was correct by more than a factor of two, more than doubled their confidence in that vote count up to nearly 50%. 
Interestingly, the partisan audit also increased confidence slightly, although we're not certain that effect will continue when seemingly inevitably the results of the so-called audit are released and they claim that there was widespread fraud. But the good news is that official audit did help and it helped with the group that had the least confidence in the results there. Yeah. In looking at this, I thought a little bit about the conversation that we had on this podcast last week about how enduring conspiracy theories can be, in particular, for example, birtherism. And we've seen over time, looking at the polling, that when discrete incidents like President Obama releasing his long-form birth certificate, then candidate Trump saying that he was wrong about the birtherism conspiracy theory lie, that we see a dip in birtherism beliefs, right? More Republicans are inclined to say that Barack Obama was indeed born in the United States. But over time, those levels go back up to what they used to be. And I think part of this is that, yes, if you expose people to correct information, they may sometimes change their views, but there's a broader ecosystem here that's priming people and they may get the correct information, but in a sea of other information. And how do we make sure, especially us in the media, that when people are exposed to correct information, that's the stuff that they trust. I don't know if we have an answer here, maybe we don't, but I think it's something that I have difficulty with, that I think a lot of people in media are contending with, because particularly in this environment in which Trump and Republicans challenge democracy to a greater extent than Democrats do today, covering that honestly can make us feel partisan in the press and then probably decrease trust in the press as a result, and then lower trust in the press and that correct information may harm democracy. So it seems like there's this really difficult cycle here to break. I mean, do you have any answers for the country and just maybe just for me as well? I wish I had the magic answer here. On the first point, I think we need to be mindful of how little the average person thinks about politics and how little media coverage they actually encounter. This does not apply to you if you listen to this podcast, of course, but the average person. In other words, you're not normal people. (laughs) I say that with love as a fellow non-normal person, but the average person just doesn't think about politics or consume political coverage in nearly the volume that you might think, given that you listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's, It's essential, therefore, to continue to remind people so that, because they may really be hearing it, maybe not for the first time, but for the first time in a long time, that, for instance, the election wasn't stolen or that climate change is happening. Those kinds of notions are important to reiterate because exactly as you described, Galen, the pattern we see is not that the effects of fact checks are long lasting and durable, but instead that they seem to quickly dissipate. And we have challenges maintaining the effects we observe in our experiments in the long term. And we have trouble decreasing misperceptions in the long term. We often see this reversion back to where people were before. So we have to keep reiterating this. And one way we could get at this point, I think, is to remind people just how many Republicans accept the validity of the results of the 2020 election. Republicans with impeccable conservative credentials in places like Arizona and Georgia. And in turn, I think that the notion to hold Republicans accountable who won't acknowledge the legitimacy of the 2020 election, given how many of their fellow Republicans have, is also important. Because what we're seeing right now is a trend where people aren't even willing to say Joe Biden was rightfully elected. Steve Mnuchin was dodging that question on TV this week. It is bizarre that former high-level officials won't acknowledge the validity of our elections. And we should communicate that again and again to the public. And when we in the media do do that, 
how do we prevent ourselves from becoming viewed as partisan actors? Because I think as lots of scholars of democracy will say that in a healthy democracy, the free press has to act as not a player for one side or the other, but upholding truth and sharing truth with the country so that they can make informed decisions accordingly. And if we stop being seen as impartial actors, then that harms democracy in turn. So like, it feels like a lose-lose situation, right? Like if you're not reiterating these things and you're not clarifying the information, you're allowing bad information to get out there and that harms democracy. But sometimes when you do, you're seen as a partisan actor. So how do you solve that? It's a really difficult question. The media will need, and indeed should, demonstrate its independence from Democrats in this moment when Democrats have unified control of government. So I think it's very much incumbent on the media to show the public in their coverage of the Biden administration that they are not pro-capital D Democrat. At the same time, as you said, the free press is a vital institution of small d democracy, and it cannot be neutral with respect to the existence of small d democracy. Any journalist who takes that kind of approach, I think, is committing civic malpractice. And there needs to be a kind of professional pressure on journalists to not simply treat democratic erosion and tactics that would accelerate it as normal everyday politics, which will be the temptation. And so we have to find ways to thread that needle. I think there are journalists who've, who've been successful at that. I don't know how often they really are able to fully reach across the aisle. That is a challenging undertaking for anybody these days. But there are journalists who've spoken very clearly about the small D democratic threat while still being seen as independent and critical voices. How we do that while also maintaining media trust, I'm not sure. I mean, there may also be, need to be a role to help audiences hear from voices on the right who recognize a threat to democracy. Those voices are critical to help people see that this isn't just simply a partisan issue. I wanna get back to a question that you asked in your survey, which was about American support for secession and creating new regional unions of states. And actually when you did this poll the last time in January and February, we talked about it on this podcast during one of our good use or bad use of polling segments. This idea of asking Americans if they want to secede and form unions in their own geographic regions of the country. I have several questions here, but just to begin, why ask Americans if they want to secede? Yeah, it's a good question. And I appreciate your discussion of it on the podcast before. We struggled with how to make this a good use of polling and not a, a bad use ourselves. Okay. We're, we're very much aware that this is measuring something where people may engage in what's thought of as expressive responding. They're not actually going out to organize secession from the union. They may simply be expressing a kind of top of the head feeling about their party and how it relates to national politics. We thought, though, that that was a feature, not a bug in this context. Secession is still quite a radical proposition, even a survey question. And we thought it was meaningful to see, even if simply expressively, how many Americans would give voice to that notion, would endorse it when asked. And I think the results are quite striking, especially as they've developed since that first poll you mentioned, which we conducted around Joe Biden's inauguration. Now we can see, with the benefit of another, we're now almost six months into Joe Biden's term, no indication over time that people are less likely to endorse secession. It doesn't seem that temperatures have cooled, at least as measured by that particular question. But instead, we see growing expressed support for secession 
in general, particularly among partisans in the regional strongholds of their party. So 66% of Southern Republicans endorsing secession, the largest number in our poll, 47% of Democrats on the West Coast as well. So it seems like people are responding in a way that's meaningful and interpretable, at least in this partisan sense, where we're seeing people in the areas that their party dominates saying increasingly they would at least consider potentially succeeding. Now, again, it's expressive. We want to concede all of those caveats. We're really looking here at the broader long-term trend. There is this threat to democracy in this country, and it's important to see the extent of Americans' commitment to it, as we talked about earlier. And this is another way of getting at that, even if it's expressive in a way. So you said that there's increased support regionally by one partisan group or the other overall. You found that between January, February, and now, the general number of Americans who said they supported secession increased from 29% to 37%. Why do you think that's increased? Your guess is as good as mine. You know, I worry that we are in a situation where both sides see impending doom. And that's a very difficult one for democracy. You know, again, there was a notion that Joe Biden promised he would bring people together and cool the temperature and all of that. But of course, we've seen that it's not clear that anyone can cool the temperature in that way. And under these circumstances, the fear is that the consent of the losers that is essential to democracy, in other words, that when you are defeated, you will give power to the victors and acknowledge the legitimacy of them exercising it, is being threatened. That both sides see the other as a kind of existential threat. And those kinds of conditions are very dangerous for democracy. And this is one kind of way of getting at those kinds of feelings. I hope that the trend uh, will decline, but I fear otherwise. Scholars of democracy talk a lot about lowering the stakes, which is to say that making it so that for the losing side, they feel as though when they lose one election, not all is lost. And it seems like that is part of the solution here is lowering the stakes. But it's in an environment where you said, both parties feel like everything is at stake. Are there actual guidelines for how to make people feel that the stakes are lowered in order for losing to be a more palatable reality? I don't know of a message that would convince people of that. I mean, there are institutional changes one could make. If we had a system of rotating appointments to the Supreme Court that would enable every president to nominate justices, that would lower the stakes. That's one of the factors that contributes to a seeming perception that elections are a winner take all. If we didn't have a presidential system, which was inherently zero sum in terms of who governs, that would change whether our elections were seen as so zero sum. And then finally, if we didn't see the threat of the other side taking power as inevitably leading to them winning every future election. Democrats are worried that Republicans will rig the rules of the game in a way that makes it very difficult for them to win future elections. They'll institute gerrymanders after 2022. They'll change election laws. They'll maintain the malapportionment of the Senate and the Electoral College. Experts are very concerned about all of those factors, I should add. There's a corresponding set of fears on the Republican side, which I think is much more poorly supported, including among experts, where there's a claim that immigration will inevitably lead to democratic victories in the future as America becomes more diverse, less non-white, and more foreign-born people come here. That's a concern that's often expressed and there's very little evidence for it. In fact, we saw in 2020 Donald Trump doing better with some non-white voter groups in a way that suggests the kind of path towards a more diverse coalition on the Republican side. 
So I don't think there's anything inevitable about that story. But when it's understood that way, most famously going back to the essay about the so-called Flight 93 election, again, the stakes seem impossibly high and people are willing to rationalize more and more in order to maintain their side's hold on power. Speaking of rationalizing things more and more, you asked about secession, but you didn't really ask about perhaps the realities of secession, like political violence or civil war. Why didn't you tie in those likely realities of secession or the taking American partisan discord to its logical extreme? Yeah, it's a fair question. We thought secession was a sufficiently unfamiliar notion that adding more complications would make the question even more complex for respondents. And the exact set of considerations you raise would influence the responses quite a bit. But it's absolutely fair. One could imagine pushing people on how much they support secession, given the risks and trade-offs. And of course, this could get more elaborate if you wanted. We could talk about regional devolution of a more extreme sort and various kinds of intermediate systems between the federalism we have now and fully separate regional states, but we haven't gone that deep into the weeds. Fair enough. I want to just ask a couple broad questions as we wrap up here about democracy. Why are these threats that we're talking about happening today? I don't know that there's a consensus on these points, so I want to be clear that I'm I'm speaking for myself. I think there's been two versions of the story that have been offered. The first is that Donald Trump himself was the kind of authoritarian threat that sometimes presents itself in any political system, including in the American one. If you read the book, How Democracies Die, for instance, they talk about the sequence of potential authoritarian figures who have arisen over the years and the way in which the system had repelled them and excluded them prior to Trump. So one story really centers on him, but the other foregrounds instead the conditions that made his rise possible the growing polarization we've talked about, the way partisan identity has become such a salient factor for a certain subset of highly politically active Americans, especially the racial polarization that Trump both took advantage of and furthered has potentially increased this threat as well. You know, you could go further and talk about aspects of the American system that may make us more vulnerable, presidentialism, the lack of multi-member districts and so forth. It would be a great a great future podcast for folks who really want to get deep into the weeds would be to talk about how the threat of far-right authoritarianism has been addressed in different kinds of political systems in Europe and compare that to here. But I'll just leave it there and to say, I think it's clear at this point that Donald Trump leaving the scene will not end this threat. He took advantage of it. He may have accelerated it, but his exit from the national stage has not ended it. And even when he's no longer active politically, I'm afraid the threat of democratic erosion will still be very real. From where you sit in conducting these kinds of surveys, studying democracy and talking to a lot of different experts on it, how do you view America's prospects with the challenges facing democracy today? Do you think things get worse, things get better? I'm more uncertain than I've ever been in my adult lifetime. You know, when I was a kid and even as a a political scientist in training, we took for granted a kind of trajectory towards moral progress and inclusion, that America was moving towards the kind of multiracial democracy that we hoped it could be. And now that vision has really been called into question. I'm not certain it will get better. Speaking honestly, I do think the nature of the threat is being more widely recognized. And that's opened up the space of 
possible reforms and changes we could make in a way that may lead to a stronger democracy in the long term. But I'm not at all confident about the next decade or two. I think political violence and instability are very real threats. And everyone of good faith from either party needs to be willing to defend them and to cross party lines in the way that we talked about. And I hope to leave a political system in better shape to my kids than the one I inherited. But right now, I'm not very confident. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks. Brendan Nyhan is the co-founder of Brightline Watch and a professor of government at Dartmouth College. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing and in the control room, along with our intern, Emma Riley. Bedden Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.